Hello, fellow pounders, and welcome back to the fifth episode of Founding the Table. Sorry we missed you last week. I was traveling back to Minnesota. I got to spend some time on the lake, saw my family, and more importantly, we gave Anthony some time to really dig in, bring you guys some of the fire for this incredible show here today. Promise you guys it's well worth the wait. Hey, fellow Pounders, thanks for tuning in. For those of you who are new and haven't heard about us before, Pounding the Table is a podcast by yours truly and Mr. Avi Mash. We talk about options trading, the stock market, and each week we try to analyze the news for you and provide our opinions around how news impacts the markets and what we're looking at this week. So, you know, let's just dig in here, Avi. Always, as we start the show, we want to check back and see how we did last week, right? So we always want to keep this 100% with our audience, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, so let's start <laughs> off with my fucking pick, Jumia. We absolutely nailed that one. I have some explosive picks here from Pounding the Table, episode four. Tony, you want to get into some of the other ones we absolutely crushed yeah. here? Avi, I'm going to just say Jumia probably was your best call ever. I mean, the thing ran from 7 to 16 in less than you know a week and a half. So incredible there. They call um, me also, uh, Young Simba now, by the way. Absolutely. And, and you know, we're going to definitely start incorporating some Lion King tunes in here shortly. Overstock O went from 31 to 56. So fantastic pick there from our man Sheikdal. Dan, he did great picking that one out with the arbitrage strategy. So basically, we just went along Overstock O at 31. And that did super well for us. And going to continue holding that one. My favorite stock now after Shop and Tesla did so well is now Mealy. We were in that Pounding the table at 946. You know, I've been pounding the table since 500, but regardless, the most recent table break, 946 to 1150 on that stock in two weeks. And honestly, for me, it was really, really easy to see. You know, the CFO came out last week and did a podcast on the Motley Fool and basically told you that everything about the company's earnings is extremely bullish. You know, they did 45% complete company growth and user base in like eight weeks from February to May beginning. that's incredibly insane. And they're just dominating by throwing more money into Mexico, you know, and they wouldn't be able to do that if they weren't crushing it already. Um, So I still love Jumia and Mealy. And it's just a whole play on the e-commerce sector, which is really booming right now. Let's talk about Jumia here real quickly. I I used your spade as a spade here. You talked Mm -hmm. about Melly and Amazon. So I was doing a little bit of digging and came across Jumia a little under 10 now it's at 1550 and we have earnings coming up here on August 12th. The stock did, of course, have a high of $40, just FYI for everyone. Jimmy, for those who don't know, huge Africa's e-commerce giant. They're, of course, in e-commerce and logistics, payment services, et cetera. Absolutely flying. We'll see as it comes up, Melly's earnings play here on Thursday. That will have a huge impact, I believe, on Jumia and mm-hmm. the momentum that we're seeing thus far. Um, We talked about this last week real quick, too, about the fraud allegations from Citron. You mentioned nobody cares. Nobody cares. Citron sucks. (laughs) Yeah. So I think really what happened here is people were saying, well, honestly, e-commerce is dominating. I read somewhere that in just the last three, four months, e-commerce in the U.S. has exploded in a 10-year amount of growth 
So that three or four months did 10 years of what normal growth would be for e-commerce. So it was not a shock to me that people would be looking to do other e-commerce plays in other continents, right? So I'm a big holder in SEC Limited, and that's a Singapore company that does Asia e-commerce, and they're killing it, 40 to 130, you know, fantastic play. And I'm going to continue holding that, honestly, likely forever or until it gets to my market cap rule, which I'll talk about later, where I decide to sell stocks for better stocks with higher potential, you know, return on my investments, even though I still love the company, you know, I might be able to sell out and get something better like Jumia, which it was when we were calling it out $800 million market cap. Now it's 2.2 billion or something like that. It's a fantastic move. If you just look at the, the CAGRs, the, the, the growth year over year for e-commerce in different countries, you know, you got the US at about 26% CAGR, You've got all of Asia, about 28% average. And so people don't even really think about Africa. People don't think there's a lot of money there, this and that, not a lot of infrastructure, but it's got a 36% e-commerce CAGR in Africa. And really the only big dominant player, despite the fact that they're small and they haven't tapped into all the market there, obviously they're newer and that's okay. But 36% CAGR, that's a great area, in my opinion, to be interested in getting into an e-commerce play. And especially since Jumia is basically the biggest and only really you know, important name in the game there. That's why we went really long in the stock. And I bought a bunch of stock around seven and nine. And so I, it has ran a ton. But here's the thing. If you look at something like SE, ran basically straight up from the 30s to 130. You look at Mealy, has not looked back since 500, shot 300 to 1100, right? So, you know, people keep waiting like, oh, I want this 20%, 30% pullback. You may not get it. And so for me, it's like, I'm happy I got in so low and I just will not sell my shares, especially since, you know, even if it goes down 20, 30% from here, that's okay. You know, I might even continue to add, but just from a tax perspective, if I want to hold this long-term, which I do, because I think it could be a huge multi-bagger 20, 50 time X kind of play. I'm not going to sell it for tax purposes. So I don't mind if it goes down since I've already have over hundred percent gain on my stock in less than two weeks. I mean, that, that's very rare to happen. So I'm holding this long. They have earnings on August 12th. And so, you know, you see shop decimated earnings, by the way, we were going to talk about that, you know, had an estimate of one cent, did a dollar and five cents, and they did a, a $7.5 billion mixed bag secondary raise. And what that means is they're raising more capital through bonds and warrants and convertibles and stocks. And they haven't announced what that package is going to look like, but they did that the night before earnings. Insane. No one does that unless you knew they were going to blow out of the water. So usually when that secondary happens, the stock drops in that almost an equal percent to the amount of the secondary. But shop was up 10 bucks after hours. So they knew that it didn't matter. They were doing that to try to become the next Amazon, which I genuinely believe they will be. So yeah, we're going to continue to be long in Jumia, continue to be long in shop until it reaches about $200 billion market cap. I'm continuing to sell some of my shop to buy more Jumia, Mealy, and SE. Uh, and you know, Mealy earnings are coming up Thursday and they're expecting $0 EPS. That is so wrong. It's stupid. I can't even believe that the analysts think that. It's absurd to me. Like you just saw shop expect one cent, give a dollar and five cents. And that's two point like one times the market cap of Mealy. So I would be surprised if Mealy doesn't give over a dollar. And that should pop at 200 points. So even though it absolutely ran last week, you think there's still momentum here for some of those folks that did miss out there? Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing with me. Like, obviously it's ran 200 and stocks that run so strongly into these really important news events, they can have volatility drawbacks, it's in that, whatever. But I think long-term, I, I think it'll still blow. And I think that the beat, it's going to be massive in my opinion. And like, quote me if I'm wrong next week, we'll talk about it. 
but in my opinion, there's no damn way it's zero sense. Zero way in my opinion. Like I'll cut my left toe off, like my left pinky toe off. I really think they're going to, they're going to do 50 cents, a dollar, heck, maybe a dollar and like a half, you know, smaller market cap, more revenue, and they're just killing it than shop. So like shop does great. Mealy is a powerhouse of multiple different revenue streams through their payment processing e-commerce. So like, in my opinion, I'm still going to pound the table. I think this thing's 2000. So you're going all McAfee on us here. At the, Absolutely. The yeah. Yeah. I chose my <laughs> pinky toe instead of my other and more important extremity. So I'll go pinky toe. Exactly. So uh, I think this is a great segue here. Of course, we give the fire picks. We never miss, of course, but we do give some average, right? So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about booking. That's another one you've been absolutely pounding the table. Uh, yep. I know you said you took like a huge loss after some massive gains from this name. So yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you actually going to do? Why would it not drop like Expedia did, for instance? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I mean, booking was my number one biggest gainer. And then obviously Shop, Mealy and you know other great picks surpassed it, which is what you want to see. You want to see your biggest gainers become not your biggest gainers because other things become bigger. So, you know, I took a huge gain on booking was my biggest gain in my life, honestly. So I I threw back in about 30% of the profit there. So, you know, even though I'm down on that new position for my January calls, that's fine with me. Like, I don't really, I expected that to potentially happen. You know, I was hoping it wouldn't, right? You don't get a new position wanting it to go down, but you know, I got in with profit from the previous gain. So even if it goes to zero, it'll be a big gain regardless for my year. Expedia, they shit the bet on earnings and they even had revised down estimates. And so they did even worse than that. But here's the difference about booking and Expedia. Booking is an international company, right? So they get a lot of their traffic from Asia, from Europe, this and that. Expedia is mostly in the US, right? So US is obviously delayed on the entire pandemic and lockdowns, this and that and traveling restrictions. If you're in the US, you can barely go to any other country right now based on the charts of where you can and can't go because of other countries' policies. So I think that booking would be surprisingly way better than people expect only because I was looking at data from Asia air travel and travel in general, and it's way, way, way higher than it was previously at the bottom of this. So, you know, obviously China's, I'm sure that they fudged the hell out of the data it's showing that people are traveling a lot more people are spending and doing stuff and you know covid's essentially eradicated there from what you can see i don't know if that's true right because you know data there once again is fudged but since booking does operate a lot of their revenue internationally i would not think that booking shits the bed as expedia did one thing i will do though is likely roll my strikes out to the next year so i'll give myself an extra year of time bite down the loss that I have on this position. It's not a huge deal because I did so well in the previous position with these exact same strikes and re-entered lower. But what I will do is roll that out so I give myself more time. So again, just kind of keeping things honest here with Redfin, right? This is one that we've discussed the past few episodes. Uh, Didn't completely shit the bed. Not a best earnings reaction, of course. Redfin did go from 4080 to 4158. So we did go up there. But not the impact that we thought. But going back to my original discussion about in my apartment in New York, I had about two empty apartments. Now we have 40 plus apartments. Recently, I just moved my rent down from 4,000 and I asked for 3,300, just try to negotiate a little bit. So nearly like 20% off. They said yes right away, right? Now when I've come to Minnesota, I've had many discussions with friends that live in the city of Minneapolis that have been moving out quite a bit, right? And so Clearly, there is this huge movement from the cities into the suburbs. People are probably going to be downsizing from current homes that they have. And so long term, I love Redfin. 
yeah, we missed this last quarter, but I, I know they lowered their guidance. So I'm hoping for a big Q3. Yeah, I mean, so you got to dig into the earnings report and you got to see what really happened, right? So, you know, one thing I, I want to say is they did lay off a ton of people earlier this year, which makes sense, right? They're a smaller company. They can't afford to pay a bunch of people if the traffic to real estate in that time was down in March and April, right? But now they're rapidly hiring and their online traffic's accelerating. From last year to this year, the June visitors are up 31%. July visitors are at the similar pace, if not higher. And they're now in the top three search results on Google. So that's huge, right? Like SEO is a massive indicator because you, know, you just type in real estate, you're going to see Zillow, you might see Trulia, which is owned by Zillow, and then you're going to see Redfin or Realtor.com, whatever it is. One of the bad things that I guess that impacted them so much was that the market-wide listings for real estate you know, declined 43% year over year in April. And they haven't recovered completely as of the last four weeks. But now the market-wide new listings are only down 3% year over year. So people will be able to see that the growth for Redfin is you know, still coming, albeit they're a newer company, smaller market caps, ability to you know, maneuver this as well, because they were trying to grow so fast and they had to switch it really quickly to their like protective mode. But what I think that is, is intelligence, right? Like if you have all these employees and you don't necessarily need them, you furlough or cut a bunch of employees, which they furloughed most of them, which is still another positive thing. Um, and then you hire them back when you need it, which is now that's like a smart executive decision. You know, they're not going to be spending as much. And that's why their loss is narrowed by that 50%. So that's pretty smart on their part. They got a bunch of new tools too, virtual listing appointments. Obviously that's great for COVID. And I know that even though COVID might get better in the next few months, which I believe that it'll actually be over in the next couple months, um, people will be able to do virtual tours or virtual listings just for the ease of it, you know? And all the great data we talked about last time, I think will only improve over time. They launched a new uh, agent dashboard and they're creating a shortlist feature, which is a, a new way for home buyers to categorize and highlight the top homes among their Redfin favorites. And then they can easily just communicate that with their agents. So that's really interesting to me still very long the stock. I think for me, it's a question of what is going to be the innovation for this space. Like real estate could be one of the last huge switches to tech. So this for me is the play to be able to say, well, hey, like what happens if tech infuses with this? And, and the data when things were good is fantastic. And they're hiring more and they wouldn't be doing that if they weren't confident that they would do well in the future. So I'm long Redfin and I'll still be long Redfin. Bobby, what do you got next for us? Well, great transition there, Tony, because we have found <laughs> in the table thesis pick. So last week, we started off with a huge bang. So Sheiktal, congrats to you again with the Overstock O. It went from 31 to 56. So absolutely massive there, Sheiktal. You, you absolutely killed it, Sheiktal. Thanks again for that. It made me go long. And I know a lot of other pounders made a lot of money on that. So fantastic pick. I got to give a shout out here to Hidden Pivots. He did a fantastic job calling this thing from literally like two bucks. Man is a legend. Give him a follow. He's fantastic. Uh, moving on, you know, we're starting to work with a designer to help create our logo and other stuff like merchandise to give you guys uh, who win this contest. So Sheiktal, you've got a mug, a t-shirt, a pair of socks. We just added this really new cool feature on Anchor. We didn't even know this existed, but we were looking for ways to possibly like let you guys show love because I know some people were asking, you know, hey, do you accept cash donations or such like that? 
Um, so Anchor does have this feature called support, and it allows donations from our listeners across every platform to give one $4.99 or $9.99 a month. So interesting stuff. We've had a lot of people already use this. So thank you for that. And that's going to definitely go into more content and guest appearances, better equipment, this and that. So thank you guys again for that. We always appreciate and encourage donations, whether it's a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever it is. Um, we're just going to use that money to go back into the podcast and make it bigger and bigger and give you guys more swag for free. So big thanks to you guys. The people want swag, Tony. So that's what we will give them. Right? Everyone's been asking, man. You know, and, and you know, got a sick logo coming. Guy pounding the table, bunch of stock tickers flying out, table breaking in half. You know, put that on a t-shirt, mug, hat, socks, whatever you guys want. Wear it around for free. So enjoy that, guys, when it comes out. Totally. Now we do appreciate the donations that have come through thus far. And if you guys feel generous and love what we're doing, please feel free to do so. Totally not mandatory, but we, of course, love it and will provide a better show moving forward. Coming back to this pounding the table thesis pick, right? We had a ton of great submissions this week. A few that did not provide a thesis. They provided the stock. So, guys, make sure to provide a thesis if you want to be considered. We did have to drop some of those. So, without further ado, drum roll, please. Winner of episode five, pounding the table thesis pick, goes to Mark Nagel. With One Connect Financial Technology, the ticker symbol OCFT, uh, which is Chinese and Asian banks. It's been under the radar. Tony, I had never heard of this one. You could probably hear from mm-hmm. my uh, questioning <laughs> of this pick, but uh, you fucking love this one. So tell us why mm-hmm. you liked it. Yeah, so here's the thing with OCFT. Uh, I was in there very, very long at like 11, 12, sold out around 14 because, you know, I was hearing some other like allegations. This was like around the time of LK and this and that, and people were selling China stocks. And so I was just like, all right, well, like it's a newer company. Let me get out of it just in case. Bad Tony, bad decision because now it's at 23. And, you know, I, I did start adding a little bit around 21 and I'll continue to add more because now, you know, I've got more renewed confidence in it. So I'll just give you guys a little rundown on what it does. It provides cloud platform-based fintech solutions. So anything in that space, you know, that's right up our alley, something I love. It gives online information, operating support services for financial institutions in China, digital banking, small and medium enterprises, financial services, retail and SME banking risk management, auto insurance operations and services, asset management, asset liability management. AI customer service, core systems, insurance sales management. So man, this thing, you know, runs through a lot of stuff. Super huge revenue growth, looking really, really good in the future. And I'm just like, you know, I I think this is a great play, honestly. It may pull back a little bit because it's already ran 100% in the last two and a half months. But either way, the growth of this kind of stock and if people believe it and don't think it's a fraud and this and that, which obviously LK was a fraud. A lot of people said GSX was a fraud and I loaded the boat at 30 and now it's at 90. So I think a lot of people just have to do their own research on these kind of companies. And if you believe, then that's a buy. If you don't believe, that's okay. Make sure you don't miss out on something because of someone else's opinions on whether or not it's a fraud. Like Citron's an idiot. They don't like Jumia and it's seven to 16 in a week. So that's what it is. But I really like this company. It's basically right in the alley of everything I like to invest in low market cap, potential for multi-bagger, great growth. I'm long. So along those same lines, you're talking about China, right? There's been massive US-China tensions for anyone that's been paying attention to the news. TikTok is fucking on fire. But Trump's saying he will not allow TikTok into the US. So for some of those novice investors out there, I'm thinking, let's go to Snap, let's go to Facebook. Trump does not allow this. You slapped me in my face virtually and you <laughs> said, wait a second, hold on, have you got to tell me a little bit about what's actually happening here with TikTok. I know there's been rumors here about Microsoft buying them. Talk to us a little bit about that. Is, is, yeah. is Microsoft able to buy them? And what mm-hmm. does this all mean here? 
Yeah. So dude, I think people don't understand what, what is happening here. Like this is like by up there with the smartest move that Trump's ever done uh, completely apolitical about this, uh, this conversation is strictly just like logic and, and like decision-making in which to like improve us uh, stances in tech and in the economy. So that's where I'm coming from about talking about this, but it was really genius of him to do this. So, you know, you go out and you say a Chinese company can't come in the U S right. And, and TikTok has a huge, huge market in the U S so they don't want that to happen. So legally they can't come in. If Trump says TikTok is not in the U S he can do that at some level, but here's the thing. So Microsoft can and they're currently really in deep talks and trying to do it quickly before anything's you know finalized so microsoft is in deep talks to buy tiktok right so that's going to be fantastic for microsoft i'm sure obviously they're going to get a crap ton of users for all their platforms through that that just kind of says where these tensions can go and what future companies can do right so if you've got a company in china that's part of another company that's you know like a subsidiary like tiktok is a bike dance if you're not allowed in the u.s then you just have to get bought out by a u.s company Obviously, with all the, the heat on it right now, you're going to get it for way cheaper. Right? So Microsoft is going to get a steal on the price of TikTok. And TikTok is going to be happy to sell at whatever price because they're getting squeezed. Right? So not only is Trump basically forcing a huge growth company to come into the U.S. or risk being dead because they can't, they're giving it to a U.S. company at a super low price. And then that kind of quells the issue of is uh, China spying on us? That whole rhetoric, once again, air quotes around that because, you know, I can't say that. But basically, you know, what's happening is that company is basically setting the precedent for what can happen in the future. And so people are like, oh, well, isn't this going to escalate U.S. tensions? Trump is saying you can't come in the country, la, 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 la. In fact, it's bullish. Basically, if this happens to every other company we have an issue with, the U.S. is just going to benefit from this happening. So now there's a precedent, and I think that that obviously will continue unless China decides to allow Google and Facebook into China, which would once again be insane growth as they make up a ton of the indices. So for those companies, either way, regardless, the entire thing's bullish, and it's actually not bullish for Snap. It might be bullish for Facebook. It's not bullish for Snap, in my opinion. I actually just got a TikTok this weekend just to look into it and see what's popping. I guess I feel like an older generation now. Don't be uh, humble. I, I couldn't even figure out how to search for someone online on like my laptop. And maybe you can only do it on the phone. TikTok is easily a Snap replacement in some ways. They could easily modify some features and make it a Snap competitor. If TikTok does get bought out, I would probably be short snaps. The rich keep getting richer with Microsoft. That'd be absolute massive. And if you guys do not believe that Tony can rap a million words per minute, he is on Tic Tac for some of our VIP. We might be able to hand that uh, URL out. For oh some of those oh folks. boy. Yeah. A rap rap <laughs> God in, in Eminem's Godzilla, the fastest verses. That was a killer. That was fun. Tony goes hard in the paint. Let's talk a little bit back here to, to last week. The market was up and down. And then we see on Friday, we had a market absolute tear in the face off. SPX went from 3245 to 3272. Apple ran at that exact same time. Your buddy Steve called this. I know you wanted to shout him out. What happened there? Was Apple the impetus for this massive spike here at the end of the week? Yeah. So obviously Apple is just a massive part of the indices, right? So if Apple ripped from what, like 412 to 425 in like an hour. So that's so, so bullish. And that definitely pulled us up. But uh, Mr. Steve D, very, very smart guy. His Twitter handle is at Basil and Sage. So give him a shout out, give him a like, follow him. When this was happening, he's talking about the KSU buyout, right? So basically when that happened, people realized that it's a big company. So it took a lot of money for the buyout. So people are saying, well, 
there's buyouts happening in the railroad space. Why would that be happening? Obviously a tech buyout kind of easy, you know, tech's booming right now, nothing crazy about that. But people have like a lot of renewed confidence in the entire market in general, right? Because industrial, small cap, the Russell 2000 stocks have been getting killed, right? So this is like the first bullish sign of something that's not really tech in a long time. And I think that had a huge impact. Completely agree with Steve's logic on that. And that's really, really cool to me. Speaking of big tech, so last week was massive. We had a ton of the FANG stocks reporting, right? Amazon absolutely crushed. Facebook was extremely interesting. A ton of massive brands say, hey, we do not want to support Facebook. They absolutely crushed. Google beat estimates. They ended up dropping a little bit. But coming back to Apple, they absolutely destroyed. They just had a stock split. Talk to us about Apple. We had a ton of people reaching out, asking what is a stock split? understanding what this means for Apple, what this means for tech, what this means for the world. Absolutely. So I think Apple had the biggest market cap move of all time. They went up like 40 points. So that's, you know, at 1.7 trill valuations, about a $350 billion move in one day. So pretty much they moved the Tesla and a Walmart and nuts, like just nuts. So that move absolutely fueled us higher. And then they announced the most bullish management decision possible, right? Like this has nothing to do with how they did and earnings, this and that, a stock split. And I think people overlook this insanely what a stock split does. Even though you have fractional shares that happen now, it it really doesn't matter. Like I think most people don't even know that you can buy fractional shares. Like you can buy a $10 amount of Mealy, whatever. You know, you you couldn't do that a couple of years ago. But regardless, like for the big funds who don't even care about that kind of thing, who just want to you know buy full stocks and shares apple at 400 is harder to buy than apple at 100 so that will just naturally fuel the price up because you know that you know stocks move on supply and demand and people have insane demand to own apple because you know there's a couple of reasons there's some people who just have no idea what is even happening and they're like oh man i'm gonna get more apple shares which is actually bullish regardless if they're right or wrong and they're gonna make money because you know the move works with the real logic that you can buy more Apple shares and you can get in at a cheaper price. So people are happy to pay a hundred bucks for Apple instead of 400. And that also drops the volatility of the stock down, not percent wise, but dollar wise. One thing I would say though, is Apple did a faux pas in my book. Why would you do a one to four split when you could have done a one to five and bottomed your stock at over a $2 trillion valuation at a hundred dollars a share. And Apple does have this tendency when they were at six something, they did a seven to one stock split. Okay. Had they done a 10 to one, the value would be higher today because it's all just perception on numeric values. So had they done a five to one, which is what I would have done, they would have gained easily like another $500 billion in market cap without anyone thinking just logically, because if it was at 80 after this, it would easily run to a hundred and nobody's even looking at market cap right now. So if I were them, I would have done a one to five just to get that little extra squeeze of, you know, 500 billion doesn't hurt. Of course, in simple terms, that stock split means for the four to one split that Apple just did, that each share owned by an investor today is going to turn into four shares. So let's say you had 100 shares. Now it's at 400 shares, right? So at that same time, Apple's stock price will be quartered from 400 to $100, which means that Robin Hooders are going to be shooting arrows and buying Apple stock. Yeah, and, and it's such an interesting thing because people think that like value of a company is directly linked to its share price, right? Even just psychologically, people are going to see, well, Apple is at 100, 105. Like, holy crap, it was at 400. Holy crap, it was at 700. 
going to have no concept of what the split is, going to have no idea what that valuation truly is behind it because all it is is just four times more shares. Nothing changed about the valuation of the company. But people will be loading the boat at 100 because they're like, man, Apple's cheap. So sometimes bad logic in the market is good for the market in general. Discussing last week earnings, obviously massive with a lot of those FANG stocks. Uh, for those that have been listening to Pounding the Table, even bigger week this week coming up. Talk to us a little bit about ASIO. I, I know that O'Reilly just had a big earnings. You were beyond upset. I've never seen you pound the table in <sighs> anger like you have. I like happy Tony. Before we get into the rest of the earnings, talk to us a little bit about why you're so upset. You've been pounding the table on AZO, but then you switch to that anger pounder. What's going on, Tone? Yeah, dude, so, so here's the thing. Like, It's one thing to lose money, and I don't get as mad when I lose money because it's me being wrong. But me knowing I'm right, and I mean like pounding the table, positive I'm right. Like I don't care at all what anyone says because like I trust my logic more than anyone's. There was no way in hell that any automotive company did poorly this quarter, right? Like I, I gave this logic on Twitter. I posted this a while ago, a couple months ago. That because of COVID, there's millions of cars just sitting there. You've got Hertz. You've got all these other you know, rental car companies might go bankrupt this and that, laying off thousands of people. Nobody's driving those cars properly. Like they should. They're letting them sit for months. People who are scared to go out of their house are not driving to the grocery store. They're ordering off. That's why we're long e-commerce stocks. So that's basically just saying that all these cars need to get their batteries replaced, technical issues, AC problems, this and that. Just really easy stuff that you go to AutoZone, you go to Advanced Auto Parts, you go to O'Reilly's, and you have to fix that. No matter who you are, especially those rental car companies, and if people are auctioning them off, selling because they're going bankrupt, whatever's going to happen in the future, that's going to rip all these automotive part industries. Another interesting thing is a lot of these auto repair companies who just like live in the area, like these like local auto repair shops, most of them just buy their parts either from China, which has not been importing, exporting. So they've been buying it a lot from advanced auto parts, O'Reilly's, and they have a big upcharge because they self-install this and that. So there's no way in my mind that O'Reilly would have missed. And here's the thing. I have AutoZone stock. I've got January calls. I've got September calls. I even got some further out recently. And I didn't load the weeklies and I'm pissed because I left tens of thousands on the table. And it's not because I didn't know it would happen. It's because there was shop, there was Amazon, like every big company was reporting. And I'm sitting here looking at the AutoZone 1200s in the morning, knowing that it popped 50 that night on O'Reilly, which I was freaking hundred percent sure what happened. And those things go from four to 30. And I'm just sitting there like I would have loaded 50 or a hundred of those. And then, you know, there was no volume on them either nobody else thought this would happen nobody else had the logic obviously i did but i should have loaded the boat right like i made a, a, a lot of money on my stocks and my leaps but missing something like that which is like you know, four to 30 on 100 contracts that's a huge yeah that's a two hundred thousand dollar miss right there i know a lot of people actually doubted my theory and they've been asking me on twitter hey what's going on with autozone why is it not ripping well actually you know i called it at 1060 that's 200 points. I mean, can't really be mad about a 200 point table pound 20%. And it's just getting started breaking out of a huge base at 1188. I've been waiting three weeks for. So, I mean, yeah, this thing's going to 1400. If you're wrong, you know, unfollow me. Get in the zone, auto zone. Let's mm-hmm. talk about these upcoming earnings. We have a chance to make it all back. So Monday mm-hmm. earnings, we have Chegg, Space, uh, Ring Central, 5.9. Tuesday, we have Beyond Meat, Twilio, and Activision. Wednesday, we have Roku, Fastly, Square, Etsy, Fiverr. And Thursday, we got Melly, Booking, <sighs> Alterix, Net, Livongo Health, Datadog, and TTD. I'm not going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I know, man. So 
Activision, awesome. If you're a Warzone fan, you got to be bullish on this. But talk to talk to us a little bit about some of these other ones here. Uh, which ones are, are going to be ripping? Yeah, I'm happy to. Right. So this is <laughs> this is a bulk of my portfolio, and people are asking, are you hedging into earnings? Are you protecting your downside? Hell no. Right. So let's say you do this. First of all, premium for the earnings on these high flyers is nuts. Right. Like it's like. 10 to 15%, 20% expected volatility moves. No point to hedge, right? So here's the thing too. I got in these stocks 200, 300, 400% below where they are now. I got Mealy from 550. I've got LVGO from the 20s, Datadog from 36, TTD 170s, Fastly in the 30s, Square in the 60s, Etsy. I'm going to load the crap out of that. Fiverr, I'm going to load the crap out of that. Just You can't own everything, but I, I should have loaded those regardless. Should have just levered. Um, but here's the thing, like, if I sell those now and my tax gains, 35% cap gains, and it goes down 20% on earnings and I don't sell, I'm still even, right? So you have to consider that because I want to hold these long, 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 long term. And most likely, in my opinion, most of these blow the hell out of the water. They kill it on earnings and they rip. I think Fastly 125. And I think Etsy 150. I think Fiverr 125. I think I think Neely 1400. I think AYX 200. I think Net 60. LVGO 150 plus, Datadog 110 plus, TTD 550, 600. Uh, you know, not saying this happens right on their earnings, but in the coming weeks. Uh, if they drop, I'm just going to load more. I'm so bullish on these stocks and I love them all long-term. Insane revenue growths, great margins. Half of these are already profitable. More than half of these are going to become profitable in the future really soon. Beyond, I hate the stock. I get the logic. I know people love, you know, non-meat plays and this and that. I just don't touch it. It's the devil stock, in my opinion. Uh, I made a lot of money on the way down with puts, but it's just such a, a pricey, hard thing to trade. And it doesn't like to hold news, right? So it'll pop every time. Good news, it'll pop 5, 10, come right back down. So not holding it. Space, I have been long that from 12 to 42, got out, got back in under 20. Could be a game changer stock. Who knows? What if they do hypersonic sound? You know, game changer. And then if they use their planes for just regular plane travel, Maybe they do a deal with Tesla for making it electric. You know, who knows? I'm thinking that's going to rip and I'm long. They did a really good turnaround. They added a new <laughs> chief space officer. Pretty sweet. I love Space Force on Netflix. Check it out. Steve Carell, hilarious. And also added a new COO. So that's you know, it's really good for me. I, I like that about space. So most of these stocks, I will not be selling, nor will I be hedging. I'm going to just actually accumulate a little bit of cash, sell out of my SPACs that haven't boomed because no mergers happened yet. And that's been my cash reserve, right? Talk to me a little bit more about space. I know Elon Musk was going absolutely mad on Twitter talking about how SpaceX, which is of course different than space. The capsule came back to earth less than a day after departing the International Space Station. Huge claps. Trump was tweeting about it. Does this affect uh, the earnings play at all? Yeah. I mean, so SpaceX, obviously very, very different company than space. Uh, so he, this is like one of the most interesting things about space. And even if you don't like the company or if the company is not going to be doing well, it's going to continue to get investor hype. A, it's a spec suite by Chamath legend. And it's the only play on the market for anything to do with space. There's not another stock, right? Maybe some OTC crap, whatever. I don't want to play that. It's interesting. It's been moving a lot with Tesla, right? So there's SpaceX is a private company, Elon Musk's SpaceX insane company. I tried to buy in private valuation at 1.5. Apparently you had to have many, many billions to get into that. 
Um, now it's 50 billion. So once I get into PE, I'm going to kill it there, hopefully. But I love the idea that people will just be buying space because of how well SpaceX and even more so how well Tesla's doing because they're all interconnected. So you've noticed SpaceX and Tesla moving a lot in tandem uh, in the past. I think that it doesn't really matter what they report. People are still long in the five, 10 year horizon of Huh, horizon pun intended i guess there it is. Uh, what it what it could possibly be so you know people just buy things because of hype and once again this is the quintessential version of a spade is a spade a space is a space right so you know people love spacex people associate spacex with tesla tesla and space move together space is a buy love it so we, we did move a few of these questions up a little bit because it has to do with earnings so sam wisely by the way Let's just pause here. Major shout out to Sam. He was the person that actually came up with the name Pounding the Table. So, Sam, you've definitely earned some swag here as well. You didn't win the thesis, but you won our hearts. So, Sam had asked, do you worry that postponing earnings is a bad omen? Yeah, no. No. I mean, so companies can do a lot of things. Management is very, very different than company performance and stock performance, right? Management has the ultimate say, like they can do splits, they can do buybacks, they can do whatever dividends, and that can always impact a stock. But it is in no way in the slightest bearish for the CFO to come on Motley Fool the weekend before they were supposed to announce earnings and basically tell you the earnings, right? Like if you listen to that and you had a calculator and you calculated what they said in their earnings, this thing is going to blow through the damn roof right? 45% growth of their entire e-commerce business in eight weeks. They, they said, we've gotten about five years of growth in three months. What do you think is going to happen? These analysts are all idiots. Like $0 EPS beat, you're wrong. You're just, you don't know what you're talking about. They thought shop would do is one cent. You're wrong. Obviously it did a dollar and five. Analysts thought Amazon would do a dollar 80. They did 10 plus. And that's with them getting 175,000 new workers. This like, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all. This is not bearish at all. This is bullish. The CFO had the cojones to come on Motley Fool, tell you basically how well they're doing beforehand. So they care about investors. He wouldn't have done that if he didn't want people to say, look, we're not doing this for a bad reason. We're doing this for legitimate scheduling concerns connected to us growing our business more. Right. So it doesn't matter. It's going to rip. Wednesday, we got Fastly coming up. We've talked a lot about edge computing offline. So Vinu Mahdi uh, said, with Fastly, can we expect some surprise revenue growth basing on usage model with them charging big customers like Amazon, Shopify, Pinterest? Where are you seeing uh, Fastly go here in earnings? This is another spade is a spade. I'm telling you, you need to just write down spade is a spade on your computer. Just I got a tattoo on my neck. <laughs> <laughs> because it is the number one market rule right? Everything's comparative. Here's the thing. Shop blew out the water. Pinterest blew out the water. Amazon blew out the water. That's just some of Fastly's customers. How does Fastly not blow out the water, right? They charge based on like usage, right? They're clearly getting used more by these big companies, right? Fastly is going to blow it out of the water in my opinion. So Vinu Mati, shout out to you for basically saying a spade is a spade and asking. And we're just saying, yeah, man, you're right. Jumia, Massive in my own heart and for many of the, the pounders that cashed in thus far. Their earnings are coming up August 12th. I think they're going to absolutely blow out just like Shop and Amazon uh, along with Fiverr. I know you're super excited about that on Wednesday. Melly, of course, on Thursday. Etsy's on Thursday as well. So even though it's a different company, it's all e-commerce. And with COVID and everything that's happening, these things are just going to be 
blown mm-hmm. out of the water. Spade is a spade. So yeah, I, and just and just to toss on that one more time, like about about fiber. The reason I included that is even though it's not like providing you physical goods, it doesn't matter, right? Like anything you move online in the tech space, you're moving work online. Like how bullish is it to move work online? Also, Etsy, by the way, makes eight hundred mil a year in revenues, and Shop makes one point eight billion. Right? Why is Etsy one tenth the value of Shop? Right? Shout out to uh, Jack Chawla on Twitter, I believe. He pointed this out to me. I'm just like, absolutely. What the hell? Like, Etsy is a buy, and I know it's ran a crap ton already. But what people don't understand, and, and I've had this conversation with so many people, even though, like, let's say in six months everything's back to normal, no COVID, there's your e-commerce growth is not going to drop what it gained. This is just not going to happen. This is the opportunity cost of capital for Etsy here. When you're thinking about why is Etsy worth one-tenth of shop when they're doing half the revenue, that's not right. Like Etsy should be worth way, way more or shop should be worth way, way less. Obviously, shop's not going to be worth way, way less in my opinion. Neither will Mealy and neither will Jumi. I think Jumi is obviously going to the moon. I would be shocked if it doesn't go to 100 in a few years. That's the thing. Like, Think about your opportunity cost of capital. You buy shop $120 billion market cap. You buy Mealy, probably $69 billion market cap. Jumi was $800 million, now $2.2 billion market cap, right? So people want that yield. They want the same sector, the same group of stocks, but they want something that's going to give them a higher amount of money. So thinking about that, it's just like no brainer about where to put your capital. People are like, are you going to be selling out of your shop? Do you think it's going to go down? I'm not selling out of my shop because I think it's going to go down. I'm selling out of my shop because I genuinely think that now my new rules, not holding companies that are over 100 billion and barely holding companies that are over 50 billion will return so much more for me and my investors. Because look, I mean, look at Jumia. Just off of Amazon shops returns and their earnings, Jumia more than doubled. And that's just like Amazon to 6,000 from 3,000 technically, right? So that's just the opportunity cost to capital. People were like, well, Amazon's a better company. Yeah, you're right. Which one's growing more? Which one can grow more at the market cap it is right now? And touch one more time on, on uh, Fiverr. This company is basically putting e-commerce of goods into e-commerce of services. And that exponential base growth that they have will be sticky, at least on some level. And a shout out to Austin Lieberman. He and I were talking about this, that the growth base that they've obtained even though it may come off a little bit after retail pops and COVID's over, that's a sticky base at some level. Even if they just keep most conservative case, 25% of the new users, that base will expand exponentially from the new base, right? So long-term, that growth of the five years of change is going to stick. Now, I love Fiverr. It's bringing the gig economy online, you know, specifically tons of people have been furloughed, all these new freelancers. So Absolutely love that one. Opportunity cost of capital. You mentioned that. We're going to touch on that a little bit later here. I'm going to be like the movie Memento, having all these tattoos with Tony's Laws, which we'll also touch on here. Shifting uh, gears just a little bit. We talk about tech all the time. Uh, I was absolutely pretty tipsy, extremely tipsy last night in our chat. We're talking stocks. I used to love the weekends. I absolutely hate the weekends now. It's so funny. (laughs) We're like, can it be Monday? Can it be Monday? Talking in our chat was like, you know, Enough about tech. What about some biotechs? We're going to hit that grand slam. I know you shared a ton and we're going to share our secret weapon here on the next uh, podcast coming up, but a few of the other ones, BTA, CRISPR, Edit, TLA. Talk to me a little bit about the next up and coming Mm -hmm. biotechs that are going to explode here. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So everyone knows software as a service has gone insane, right? And Edge Cloud and the new wave of software as a service will be, you know, the, the hyper growers there, in my opinion, the Fastly's and such. But there's another area in the market that is going to, in my opinion, see as good, if not better growth over the next 10 years, especially since a lot of these SAS companies, software as a service, have become richly valued. I think that things like NVTA, Invitae Corp, you know, their singular missions to make genetic information affordable and accessible to everyone who can benefit from it. Amazing. You know, that could be massive. And I know that once again, Ophir Gottlieb loves his stock. You know, guy's a legend. Amazing. Give him a follow. He's fantastic. I, uh, I subscribe to his CML Pro, you know, for the last year. Fantastic guy. Really, really smart. Um, CRISPR. CRISPR hasn't brought a product to the market yet, but they just released some insane news a couple months ago, which made me get super long in the 50s. They are on FDA fast track for the only hemoglobophilia cure dealing with that issue. And that makes up 7% of all the diseases on earth, right? And they're like ahead of that by a lot. Massive buy for me. I think this company is a $500 stock at the minimum. And I mean like the minimum, minimum. I've you know, if it turns out the way I want to, genetic editing and like dealing with these kind of diseases, why would it not be a thousand? And this is just like the, the tech is just behind, you know, it's just like we're, it's moving as fast as it can. And things like, you know, we haven't had software as a service grow like it has in a day, right? Like it started with Adobe and then Salesforce. And when that started, people were shitting on it like nothing else. I mean, those companies are two of the biggest companies in the world right now. And look at all the other little ones that came out because of it. So that took years. That's like five, 10 years. This could do the same. And, you know, another one we're talking about, Editas, mission and commitment is to harness the power and potential of CRISPR gene editing, right? So it goes hand in hand with one of my favorites, CRISPR, to develop a robust pipeline of medicines for people living with serious diseases around the world. The goal is to discover, develop, manufacture, and commercialize transformative, durable genomic medicines for many diseases. And this is what I own all four. Right. Because I don't know which is going to be the winner. I don't know which one will benefit. If any of these fails, that's fine. Because I think that at least one or honestly, I think all will be a dominant market owner in this new wave of you know, companies that people want to get into the next SAAS. And I think this is that sector. Obviously, we're going to talk about our crazy pick next week. That is a massive play, in my opinion. I think that's a 50 hundred bagger. Uh, but these for right now, like I'm so, so, so bullish on this industry. And I know that it may take two, five, 10, 15 years, whatever it is. And I was hearing this guy really changed my opinion about when to invest. This guy, Tesla was 30. He bought uh, was like $150,000 worth of stock. Everyone was saying it was not going to happen, this and that. You know, this was before I was bullish on 80. He was 30, bullish on 30 and I, and I didn't have that kind of cash back then. Or I would have done probably a similar play. He put 150 grand in and in 10 years, he banked 8 million, right? That's amazing. And he had the foresight to see that because he knew that was the future. All right, I saw this other guy on Twitter. He bought, you know, 20,000 overstock of five bucks. Then the March crash. Guy banked 1.5 million in four months because he had that conviction on an industry. And that obviously happened way faster than Tesla. But once again, you never know when these things are going to happen is you have to have that foresight for the future, which I really do see that here. And I think that if it doesn't work out, that's fine. But I think it's a lot easier to try to prevent diseases genetically, or whatever these things are creating, than to try to cure every disease, right? So this is, in my opinion, the future, I don't see it going any other way. I'm, as you would say, balls along these. You don't love pharma companies, but this is completely different where it is 
biotech curing things before they need the medicine, right? So. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not a fan of like, I, I really don't like pharma. I, I'm not a fan of drug prices. I think, you know, in five years, drug prices are all going to be so, so down. These companies are not going to be making the kind of profits that they are now making, you know, charging $3,000 a month for diabetes uh, insulin. It's, it's insane to me. It shouldn't be that way. That's my opinion. But I think this kind of circumvents that entire thing and in a way more effective and efficient and just smarter way. You know, who knows, you know, if, if CRISPR does what I think it's going to do, we're going to live to 200 and Avi's going to have twice as strong eyeballs. Trump's been very vocal about this in terms of lowering the pharmaceutical companies. So I think you're completely right. Speaking of eyeballs, uh, let's get into weed stocks. A lot of people are super high on weed stocks. They're absolutely smoking hot right now. Let's spark up a little bit more of a conversation <laughs> into some of these specific companies here. Like how, how, did you, <laughs> how did you how did you do that? How did you pass so many zingers in one line? Incredible. Obviously well, why you're the co-host. Well I'm very yeah, good I mean, at weed we, stocks. <laughs> <laughs> well we talked about CGC last week and I think it was what sixteen when we were talking two weeks ago. Now it's a twenty, I think over twenty one two. So that's a you know another pound in the table ripper twenty five percent. Not bad. Not bad for a week. You know, a guy I follow, guy I know well, super, I mean, just insanely smart guy. His handle on Twitter is at Wall Street Unicorn. ST is for street. So yeah, uh, Wall Street Unicorn, genius guy, uh, told me about these US multi-state operator pop plays. So I, I've been looking at the ABCs, the Crohn's, the Tilray's, this and that. But he was like, these are better growth and better price to sales versus Canadian plays everyone talks about, right? It's so logical to me, right? He's guy's a genius. Why would you buy Canadian stock plays if it looks like we are going to be getting legalized in the U.S.? You know, maybe it's not this year, maybe it's not next year. Whether it's Biden or Trump, I think it happens. I don't really think it matters who's a winner of the election, but I think it's going to happen. So he was shouting out these names to me: CRLBF, TCNNF, GTBIF, TRSSF, CURLF, ACGRF. And that one's really interesting at the end because uh, CGC has an option to buy if the U.S. gets legalized. It's very, very, very cool. Um, and if you look at like the price of sales and revenue, and the, these are like way better than all these other Canadian stocks, like by a mile, right? And, and I just want to share some logic he had here. They have real revenue growth. States that have massive budget holes need to fill them somehow. And you're seeing that like what you were talking about last week with uh, DraftKings and they're legalizing mm-hmm. betting all over the country. Why would they be doing that? States need money. You know, jobs need to be created. If the Senate goes Democratic in 2021, you know, I don't know if that happens or whatever, but if that does, easily, you know, weed's going to be legalized very, very quickly in the U.S. Now, Robinhood's going to love them, obviously, because Robinhood flocks to this kind of stuff every day. And, you know, the reason they have an F at the end of them is because they're not listed properly. So if they get uplisted to regular markets, NASDAQ, NYSE, SP500, anything like that, that's going to rip just by the uplisting. So, um, I'm looking into these. I'm going to be very bullish on these very soon. I had CGC kind of sold out and I started accumulating these other names. So big shout out to Wall Street Unicorn. Very, very smart guy. So we've come to the segment here where we want a little bit more fire, right? Spade is a spade. Got me to Jumia. You were talking about Melly. You're talking about Amazon. I started digging through, as I mentioned, found Jumia. Let me become an all-star here on this podcast, Tony. Can you please feed me a little bit more fire around some additional rules you have? Yeah. So one thing I was talking to people about, and I posted this on my Twitter this week, uh, rule number one is if you can't give the reason for your investment in one sentence, you should stay cash because you don't know what you're talking about. It's so, so true. It sounds counterintuitive. You see people making 50 page dossiers about stocks, this and that, right? 
difference between like if you give a dossier which explains the stock way way in depth that's that's fine right if you're already bullish on it with a sentence then you know anything extra is cool but i'm saying people who need 50 minutes to talk to you and say this is why gold is a good buy you don't know what you're talking about like you should be able to say in one sentence mealy half the value shop more revenue latin america is exploding and they were forced to buy in Argentina through Mealy. Easy. Next question, right? That's the kind of thing you want to look for. So for me, if I don't, if I'm not able to say it in one sentence, I will never touch it or buy it, right? Like well, we just talked about these pot stocks, US pot stocks, you know, haven't been legalized yet, can be legalized. And these companies make more revenue, better sales ratio. And there's a lot of other things in the US that's going to promote them. Easy. It's like, it's like 20 words. That's all you need. You don't need anything more. So yeah, here's rule number two. When you feel strong on something, whether or not the timing, whether or not you think you're right, if you believe, if you believe you're right, not if you think you're right, if you believe you're right, that's when I load the boat, right? Like I looked at Jumia when we were talking about it last week. I, I've been playing it. It's on the radar for a couple months now, but I saw like the first big volume tick and I was like, man, shops ripping, Amazon's ripping, like all these things are killing it why is the biggest CAGR company not ripping it in Africa, right? Like highest growth is for e-commerce is in Africa. So yeah, I did one click, loaded a crap ton of Jumia, did a couple more clicks, bought more Jumia and bought Jumia calls. Could I have been wrong in the stock go to five or four? Yeah, sure, whatever. Was that a little bit of a risky play? I mean, I guess, but I had that conviction that e-commerce all around the world was going to rip, right? So for me, it was a no-brainer. When I feel strongly about something, I load the boat. Like shop was at 350 during the March crash. I loaded the boat. My, one of my biggest gainers for the year. So easy for me. If I feel really, really strong about something, I'm not going to wait. Like I'll buy a big position size and then I'll just keep adding if it goes down or I'll keep adding if it goes up. Because when you feel strong about something and it moves in your right direction, a lot of people have the issue of selling. You don't sell when your company's doing well and you're right, especially if it's just starting out with a low market cap. That's like when you're like, okay, well, maybe I should have bought more. Of course, my role here on the podcast is to dumb a few things down for those that may not know. So CAGR, when Tony is talking about that, is compound annual growth rate. And that brings us to bonus rules. Tony. We have two extra rules here today. I'm ready to talk about them. Let's see. All right. So this rule is probably going to go against what most people think I do every day. And they think I do a ton of weeklies and like riskier options. I really don't. Like I really am not a fan of buying like $10, $15 contracts, sometimes 20, even seven or eight if it's weekly. Like it just like makes me not as happy as if I were to just put twice or three times the money in longer term calls. The rule I guess here is know your timing for what you want to be buying and understand that your risk for longer term positions, including stocks and leaves can be higher than your risk for weeklies, right? Because I guess rule inside of a rule is when the market gaps up like crazy, have you not noticed that the market drops a lot and then shakes out people and then can run higher? I know I don't buy weekly calls on a gap up. I buy weekly calls on a gap down because it is a buy the dip market, right? So you don't want to buy when the market's ripping. You, you, you sell the rip and you buy the dip. So that's one of the rules for weekly options there. And then, you know, I would just tell people to think like, hey, maybe if I have a long-term conviction on something and I don't know when I'm going to be right, just buy yourself some time. You know, buy yourself some time, I guess, is the rule. Stocks, leaps, something like that. That's what I do. It's been working out really well for me. And of course, I juice my returns with weeklies here and there, but that's pretty much, you know, my strategy, stocks and leaps. But what I always do and I always tell people is to hedge into euphoria. And that's the rule right there hedge into your euphoria, right? A lot of people are like, why are you buying puts? The market's up so much. 
because the market likes to drop 30, 40 points and then reverse. And so those gains that you had for the day evaporate unless you hedge yourself or get out of those positions. So what I'll do is the market rips, I'll sell my weekly calls and I'll like focus more on my stocks and my leaps. And the second, you know, we're at these strong SPX levels, I will buy puts on SPX for that day or that week or whatever it is. So that way I can hedge my longer term positions with short term hedges, which end up being a higher percent return on my like downside when the market corrects. You know, if the market's down easily, I'm starting to buy calls because I haven't seen the market not bounce back in a while. And until it doesn't bounce back, that's going to be continuing to be my strategy. Uh, a lot of other <laughs> questions coming up here. I know we talked a lot about the opportunity cost of capital thus far. So we'll get into the questions from the audience. First one here is from Nuvi Nuv, who's asking, how many positions do you hold at a given time? Or are you mostly in concentrated positions that you have full conviction on? Okay, so that's a, a tough question for where I'm at right now in the market. You know, when the market was crashing in March and April, I was in a lot of leaps. Like I would say my per- percent of leaps was over 50, maybe 60%, just because like I was like, Mark is down 40%. I bottom ticked the bottom and I really thought that that was the low. I ended up being right. Glad I wasn't wrong. I would have gotten really hurt. Um, but you know, that's the thing for me now is I'm trimming out of those leaps more and more. And I got myself down to under 30% leaps and options and I'm more into stocks and SPACs and cash. So for me, you know, it's not really about how many positions I have, even though that is a huge thing to consider, right? You got the opportunity cost of capital. If you're holding something like shop and Mealy and SE and Jumia, you want to diversify that into the ones that are the lowest market cap. Because if you think the trend continues, then, you know, there's no point to hold shop at 150 billion valuation. And obviously I think shop's still going to 5,000, but if shop goes to 5,000, Mealy could be 8,000. And if shop goes to 5,000, Jumia could be a hundred and SE could be 500, right? So for me, the amount of positions is more just like, where do I want to allocate my capital to get the best return? So sometimes I'm in 20 positions, sometimes I'm in 10 and sometimes I'm in 50. And I mean, 50 between stocks, leaps, SPACs and verticals and whatever other layers I have on each name. So I try to never have more than 30, 40 names in there only because I like to move money around for the yield during the week, during the month, during the year. Um, Currently, I'm actually moving out of a lot of positions and trying to concentrate my portfolio just because I've already had a really, really good uh, start to my year two up over like 20%. So what I'm going to be doing here is continuing to squeeze the money out of my leaps uh, and my leap options for different tech stocks and other runners and move that into more concentrated positions. Like I'll probably be buying more and more LVGO, more Fastly, more of these other companies that I'm very bullish on. I'll be loading more in these U.S. cannabis plays. We'll be loading more Jumia. I need to make a position for Etsy. You know, it sucks, but I'm going to have to probably sell my shop position to buy Etsy and to buy more Mealy and Jumia. Um, I'm probably going to have to sell some other positions, things that aren't just really working right now, like some rut-based stocks. I have a bunch of IWM calls, and so that will cover anything if the rut rips, right? So I want to be exposed to everything I like, but I don't want to be overexposed to a certain industry, especially one that's not going to give me the best return. No, I think that's massive too. I, I, mean, I sometimes look at my portfolio and I'll see it get into 30 stocks. So finding those stocks that give you the best opportunity cost of capital is is massive. I know you were just also talking about SPACs, which goes right into Sully RY's question about you know, what percentage allocation do you think is reasonable to have in SPAC? Obviously, boom, if that merger does happen, but it's basically a cash drag slash opportunity cost in the interim until that acquisition does happen. Talk to me a little bit about that because that cash to your previous point is sitting on the sidelines. You do not have that in a growth stock until it does pop. 
So my personal allocation for that is really just whatever you want to be risk off, right? So I, I think the cool thing about SPACs is that they're obviously extremely liquid. We just talked about liquid, so you know, don't forget, but very, very liquid. It's basically cash, right? Because you're sitting in a company that's a blank check company and it's basically just cash until they do a merger. Obviously, you can oscillate 5 10% here and there. And like, for me, that's not a big deal because I want to hold it long-term. And I think that the cool thing is that at any moment, it can explode. And they're so liquid that I could sell them after hours in a second. I could sell them during the market in a second, one, one click. And they're, you know, the spread is like one or two cents. So I'm not worried about getting out of those because it's basically like getting you know, a approved mortgage. It's just cash, right? Even though it's in something else. So I can't give a percent allocation specifically per person, but anything you want to be risk off on, you could be in cash and SPACs. And I think they're honestly interchangeable. If the market tanks like crazy and people want to raise capital, they could go a little bit below their $10 bottom on average. You know, I know PSTHU, uh, Ackman's new SPAC at 20 bucks, the biggest SPAC that IPO'd yet. Stuff like that will hold their floor, right? Like 20 or 10. And if they go to 19 or nine, you're going to be less upset than if you were in a bunch of other growth stocks. So you could use it as like a proxy in between buying something that could rip really, really hard or being in cash. So it definitely takes risk off if you want to get out of some growth stocks and buy this for whenever they do rip. Because in my opinion, there's a couple of things like Chomets, IPOC and IBOB, which we've been pounding the table on for weeks. And I just cannot wait for them to actually start doing stuff with their mergers because we're going to have a crazy episode because I think those are both five X's. And Ackman's PSTHU, another. So I, I put a lot of my money in all three of those just as like a cash holding. Mergers can take six to 18 months, max time usually. But once again, I'd rather be in something and not knowing when they're going to pop off than being in something that I know is never going to pop off, which is cash. Love it. So next question here comes from Profit Sniper, which is an absolutely sick uh, Twitter handle there. Asking, can you just explain limit orders and how that spread can potentially benefit us as traders? Yeah. So, I mean, like you should always do a limit order on an option, right? Talking about spreads versus normal stocks. Like for instance, you can get a call option, let's say on like Shopify, not the real price, but let's just say it's 10, right? And let's say the stock is at a thousand and you're buying the 10 fifties for 10 bucks. You could always do that. Or you could buy the 10 fifties at 10 and simultaneously sell the 11 hundreds at like four or five. Right. So that means that instead of putting in a thousand bucks a contract, you're putting in maybe 500, 400 bucks a contract while you are capping your gains, because if it goes over 1100, you're not going to make any more money. If you're wrong, you're not going to lose the entire amount. You're going to lose half. Right. So you got that 50 point spread between 1050 and 1100. So you're getting a 10 X on that option and you're risking half. And, you know, if you think it's going to 1200 that week, so be it. Maybe it happens nine out of 10 times it's not. So you're going to be happy you're putting in less, especially if you're wrong. So for me, spreads are really the way to go. And when I do weeklies, I almost exclusively do spreads. My boy, KOD, AKA Kevin O'Donnell is asking the hypothetical question of the day. If you wanted to bury a significant sum of money that you know you're not going to touch for several years, What's the responsible consideration? Would you go mutual funds, something else? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a based on your own opinions and your risk tolerance and especially like your age to consideration to make, right? Like if you're young, if it were me and it is like, this is what I do. I just buy these growth stocks. Don't look at them. And I put them away in my own portfolio and just let them sit. If you're you've got 45 years to get a technical 65 year old retirement, right? So if I'm wrong on those, that's okay. Cause like when I'm 30, I can buy other stuff. Um, 
but if you're, you know, 30, 40, 50, then you kind of got to consider a different mixed bag of things, right? So you want some stocks that are higher in market cap that are going to sustain during a market drop. You want some growth because you, you know, those will be juicing your returns. If you bought Apple, sure, you know, Apple went from 200 to 420, right? But that, and that's fantastic. I mean, double trillion dollar market cap kind of thing, crazy. But in the same time, Fastly went from 10 to 100. Right? In the same time, LVGO went from 16 to 130. In the same time, you know, Crowd went from 30 to over 110. ZS, you know, 30 to 120, 130. So you've got all these companies that will obviously outperform based on what I just said before about the growth and the revenue versus indices. But if you're older, like 60, 65, and you, and you don't, you know, you don't necessarily think you have like the amount of time you want to put into something that could potentially work out in five to 10 years, right? Yeah. Like I, I still don't like mutual funds. I, I think that ETFs can go with a good way, right? Like something like the ARK ETF, which has growth, but diversify between a bunch of things is, you know, a good play for me. S&P 500, VTI, dividend, some other dividend ETFs. So that's the kind of thing. And, but that is always with the premise that you think the market will continue to go up. So it's all about what you think is okay for your risk tolerance and the amount of time you want to put into it. But if it were me and I'm, you know, I'm 23, if I were to bury a significant sum of money, I won't touch for years, I would do the growth and I would do SPACs and I would not touch anything over a hundred billion in market cap. And that's the way I run my fund because that's what I want to do. I want the juice. I want the returns. And I think I can pick stocks pretty okay. So I would rather pick the ones that I believe in versus things that I think everyone already believes in or has believed in, which is why they're so high now. So I know this is really your first real quote unquote job coming out of college, but Heath is asking, how do you know when you can quit your day job and start actually trading full time? Big shout out to Conan Heath. Love the guy. Had a nice phone call with him today and we were talking about this actually. So I was always of the belief that I can do this and with really no premise besides the fact that I hit one crazy like thousand dollar to seventy five hundred thousand dollar trade when I was like 16 and I was like oh I could be great at this then I like proceeded to have troubles for the next two years trading still but what I would say is if you love the markets and you're passionate about it and you're sitting at your nine to five saying this freaking sucks right like I don't want to be here and if you make more money in a week or two weeks than you make in a month or three months or six months a year at your job you can start considering like, Hey, if this wants, if you want this to be your full-time job, you love it. You wake up for this shit, then why not? Right. But what I would say is do not rely solely on the markets as your only source of income. And that is a mistake that I made for the last few years of my life. I bust tables for a few years, made a few grand and then went balls deep into trading right away. Didn't have any backup plans or anything. And that's, that's just how I roll. You know, I, I believe in myself to the point of delusion because I know I'll put in the work and the effort. And if I don't do it, that's fine. I, I would fail. And then I learn something. So that's okay. But you know, if you have a family, you have a house, you have liabilities and things to worry about, then you know, it's not my cup of tea to just drop everything you're doing that's you know, sustainable, easy. If you're getting a you know, consistent five to eight, $10,000 salary a month and making 100 grand a year, and you're only making 20 grand trading, that's not the time. When you're making way more than you make every year, then you do it. The only reason I said screw it to working at like, you know, BlackRock or anywhere else after I graduated was because the year before I graduated, my junior year, I made over the amount of money I would make at those firms. This is my job. Like, this is going to be my life. And, you know, you were in that shot that like December, you know, that uh, 2018 year where I was like making a bunch of money. And I was like, okay, like I proved it myself that I can finally do this after four or five years of struggling and sucking and blowing up accounts and everything. So then I made it my full-time job. But had I not been able to do that, 
I can't say I wouldn't have done it. I still would have done it. Um, but I probably shouldn't have done it if I didn't do that. For me, it's find a way to have your income supplemented from your current job, whether it's real estate, whether it's another small side e-commerce business or whatever you want to do to make money on the side that you don't have to be actively working 40 to 60 hours for a week. Have that supplement your current income. Continue to focus on trading and get better and better. But in no way should you quit your job to do trading full-time if you're not making twice what you're making at your job consistently. Or you can do both and just listen to pounding the table and have Tony <laughs> give you that fire. Also work a job like I'm doing as well and have this be some amazing supplemental income on the side. Just or to that. kick, kick, that kick works. some ass. Yeah, exactly. Uh, last question here before we uh, pound the table big time. Uh, Munchie, Super Bear, is asking... Uh, is the market going to drop big this week or next? I don't even like that question. I love the fact that he asked it, but you know, the question itself is like saying that we think that the market is going to drop in the next two weeks. If the market were going to drop, in my opinion, obviously I'm wrong on this sometimes. Like, you know, even our episode three, we're like, this is going to rip and then it dropped and then it ripped crazy, right? You know, the timing's a little off, but logic was flawless. Um, I think that the market is not going to drop big. And here's the thing, right? Like, unless we go under 3,200 on the S&P 500, which has been tested, I don't even know, 10, 15 times now with no avail to the bears, then I'm bullish. Like if we, if we close under 3,200, yeah, I'll, I will sell a lot of things, but as long as we're over 3,200, what's 70 point drop when we rip 50, 60 points reversal on Friday, right? Like if you're worried about a 70 point drop, then you're overexposed and you need to figure out your portfolio. But if you're not worried about a 70 point drop, you have such a defined level. Now 3,200 is like the line in the sand bulls versus bears under 3,200 bearish over 3,200 bullish. And it really is as simple as that. And if we were going to drop, if we were really going to have that big dive, it would have been on Friday. All those big tech stocks reported earnings. Apple was up $350 trillion in, rev, in uh, market cap. Amazon killed it, ripped 200 points. Apple up 40. Uh, Facebook up 20. If we were red that day and didn't go green, and I was saying this everywhere else, I could possibly talk about this in my, like, my personal group chat. I talk about stocks and like my Twitter. Had we not gone green, I would have probably flipped a little bearish because we sh- there's no reason that the biggest components of the indices were exploding to crazy new highs and we were red. But we closed green and we rallied insanely at the end of the day. So I'm bullish. I don't think we drop. If we go under 3,200, different story. But yeah, I'm going to pound the table here. 3,400, 3,600, 3,800 S&P 500. You heard it here first. And honestly, I'm going to venture to say one more thing. Obviously, give this some time. 4,200 S&P 500. Wow. You have heard it here first on pounding the table. People want to know what's next. Obviously, we gave a lot of fire context, mostly you, actually 99% you. But for those of you who <laughs> missed the jungle of madness with Jumia, uh, Melly, et cetera, what's next, man? So let's have this new little section here that we're introducing for people that just want to know the stone cold locks for the upcoming week. I know you shared a few of them here. You mentioned Melly, Jumia, Fiverr, Fastly, Livongo Health, Roku, Net, Square, so a lot there. Again, we could talk about them all, but what are you absolutely just putting your fist down, breaking that Ikea table, pounding the fucking table on? Let's go. Let's get rich. What's popping? Uh, it's got to be Mealy and Fastly. And honestly, yeah, five or two. Right? I, I, Jumia is a little bit different for me because it's got earnings in two weeks, so it may take some time to keep ripping. I, I, I think it goes to 20 this week um, just because if it gets over 16, it'll go to 18.3 without any 
batting an eyelash. If it gets over 18.3, it's going to 30. So you heard that here first, and that's what I believe in. Um, but once again, I don't know the timing on that, right? So I can't say for this week or next week's locks. But in my opinion, there is zero chance Mealy misses their earnings report. I think they blow it out of the damn water. I think they rip 100, 200, unless it's priced in. But pff, market cap's so low, I don't think it's priced in. Especially since if they're going to blow it out of the water, like shop blew it out of the water, Mealy could go to 2000 in like three, four, five months. So pounding the table on Mealy, pounding the table on Fiverr, right? Like I think Fiverr is an un, like, untalked about enough company. Like I think that they are the entire other sector of e-commerce that isn't even good and is just services, right? So I think Fiverr going to blow it out of the water. Fastly, in my opinion, since they are literally like cu- customers of Fastly are like shop, Amazon, right? Pinterest, and they all blew it out of the water, right? Spade is a spade and, you know, a spade's friend is a spade's friend. I'll add that little nuance there. Ooh. So there's no way, in my opinion, that Fastly doesn't do what people are thinking it may not do right i think it's gonna rip i i it might be priced in because it has ran like 500 percent, right but i think in terms of its earnings growth i think it's going to be a really great earnings growth a bunch of the other ones i really like obviously fast net lvgo sq roku those are great and i think one more un untalked about enough stock is etsy Uh, once again shout out to austin lieberman at austin 7l something on twitter Guy's really smart, like him a lot, um, likes to drive a minivan, funny dude. <laughs> but I think Etsy, you know, at the way that it's producing the revenue that it is and the valuation that it's at, doesn't make sense. It should be way higher. It should be way, way, way higher. And so, you know, I'm actually going to start loading the January 150 calls. I don't like to play weekly as on earnings because you can get burned. And if I'm wrong, at least I have another earnings date, which is another rule, you know, I've mentioned before for long-term stocks, at least have another earnings date at the minimum for a long-term stock, uh, a long-term options position. So going to just wrap it up here again, Mealy, Fiverr, Fastly, and another beautiful, beautiful one that I have actually missed. And even though I had it on my table pounding at 40 and I played it from 40 to 60 and then I sold. So Etsy is probably going to be one of the bigger winners along with Mealy. So Awesome. Well, we are wrapping it up, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again for all of your patience. We absolutely love you all. And genuinely you guys keep us going so we would probably do this for ourselves but it does help to have a lot of fanfare so happy to hear all these people crushing it got a ton of dms as i mentioned trying to grab our picks and uh each week we're giving you guys the best strategies that we possibly can so thank you pounders absolutely man thank you guys so much i really can't tell you how many dms we've been getting and how nice the comments are thank you guys so much it means the world to us and again if you want to see us do more cool stuff guest appearances better quality podcasts we're gonna get an editing team we're gonna get new equipment uh we're gonna give you guys merchandise and designer a, a mug or a shirt or a hat or a pair of cool socks that are going to be a little raunchier than the other things because no one really sees your socks unless you want them to so um if that's the case you know and you guys love our content please hit the support button on all the platforms or in spotify because they don't let you put a link or a support button there it'll be in the description of the uh, video automatically so once again thank you guys so much we're going to be pounding the table until the table's break. And then once the table breaks, we're going to get another table to pound and break. So thank you guys again. Donate if you feel so inclined. And, you know, we're just going to be doing this until the tables fall off the wheels. Ikea is going to need to become a sponsor. So thank you guys. <laughs> Happy trading week. We will see you live next week for another edition of Pounding the Table.